with the first pick in the 2013 NFL Draft, the Kansas City Chiefs select Eric Fisher, tackle, Central Michigan. So talk about a first. First time in a long time that we didn't know who the first overall pick was going to be. On a first, it's a Central This opening almost didn't happen because I had to answer a question about Greek chicken pijitas. Ooh. Pitas or whatever. Tasty. Uh, anyway, uh, I was thinking while you we were playing that clip, having the number one overall pick in the NFL draft is a really cool consolation prize for your team sucking, but maybe not quite as cool when you pick a left tackle. Yeah, even if he's a franchise left tackle. Like, like do you think Chiefs fans rush to the facility? Like, good... do you have the jerseys printed yet? <laughs> I think they're waiting outside the door right after the pick. Yeah. Well, what can you do? Can't be Nashville every night. That's right. Uh, welcome. Uh, season 3, Episode 10 of the Sportscaster. Second episode back after our little winter hiatus. Uh, April 30th, 2013. we got a great show lined up for you today. We have an Academy Award winner. I believe our first ever Academy Award winner. Who also won a national championship in football, I think. Probably our definitely first the ever first. football NCAA national champion. And definitely the first to do both. And back-to-back weeks where we've had NCAA champions on the show. That's right. Uh, Ed Cunningham is going to be on the podcast today. Uh, also, our boy Dave Damashek is going to be on. Um, we knew it wouldn't be long once the show came back that Dave would be on. So we're going to talk to Dave about a bunch of different stuff, including what goes on at the draft that you don't see, like right. Chris Berman's entourage. Dave took time out of uh, or on the day of Baby Oprah's birthday too, so to talk to us, which yeah. is huge. Yep. So gotta love Dave, and also we're gonna get a little nerdy and talk uh, baseball analytics and Rick Jenneret with Jonah Carey from <laughs> yep. Grantland.com, and also baseball tonight where he's been appearing uh, recently. So lots of great things to get to. Don't forget about last week's podcast, which you can still find on our website and iTunes and. Stitcher Radio, where we had Richard Deitch, uh, Lee Jenkins, and two hockey NCAA champions, Anthony Day and Kenny Agostino. Uh, don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. Find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Our blog, which features a new uh, blog that Don did about the first round of the NFL draft, is the sportscasters.blogspot.com. You can email us at the sportscasters at gmail.com and our website is www.sports-casters.com and oh by the way we never do this for some reason i'm steve bennett and you're don russ i am yes we never like to tell anyone who we are yeah yeah <laughs> yeah probably no one cares everyone's downloading to listen to dave or jonah or ed anyway right sure yeah yeah all right let's uh start things off with uh something that involves none of them three things let's play a game all right mm-hmm. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Alright, well the first thing Don and I are going to team up on, actually the first two things we're going to team up on, 
And uh, we kind of talked about it off the top and played the highlight. The NFL draft came and went. Three long days of a lot of guys. Some you know, some you don't know. Some, as soon as your team picks them, you'll Google them and try to pretend like you know about them so that when you go and talk football about your friends, oh, yeah. you know the most about the tackle you took. Plays with his hand down yep. and the five position. And yeah, ball all skills, that. all that. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Like, I thought the draft was interesting. It kind of got off to a slow start. But then once it got around the range where the quarterbacks might be coming off, it, it got kind of interesting. Uh, living in Buffalo, the Bills were really interesting. What were sure. they going to do? And I don't think anyone would have picked trade back and then take EJ Henderson in the or EJ Manuel in the first round. Maybe trade back and take Nassib was kind of the right connection or Barkley. There. Right. Look, uh, but, uh, I posted on Facebook something about the. I think I talked about it last week actually on the podcast about the Bill Parcells draft theory and the. Uh, the different rules. The different rules when drafting a quarterback. Emmanuel fell short. I think he was only a three-year or didn't start for full three years, something like that. But anyway, my take on the on the EJ Manuel thing is this: the Bills didn't settle like they did when they drafted JP Lossman because Ben Roethlisberger was off the board and they had hoped he would still be there. They didn't have to move up to reach to take a guy. They may have quote unquote reached, but they reached at the most important position and. They have a guy that is unequivocally their guy. It's not someone that they, the other another team didn't make the choice for them. There were no quarterbacks off the board. Right. They liked him enough to pick him there, so they're going to live or die with this decision. And I'm fine with that. People are beating him up a little bit in Buffalo for reaching. We could have had him in round three or whatever. That's all. Not that's a all, guarantee. That's not and a if guarantee. That's your guy, a quarterback. Just draft him. Someone might have thought that about the center that uh, I think Dallas ended up taking. Mike Mayock said he had a third-round grade or whatever on the center that Dallas took at the end of the first round. If that's their guy and he turns out to be a pro bowler and whatever, a reliable starter, take him when you can get him, especially at the quarterback position. So I'm, I'm fine with what they did with E.J. Manuel. Yeah, again, a lot of guys, not the sexiest draft, but it's a weird one where you can almost make an argument that day two is kind of more interesting than day one right. because of all the big names that were still left on the board and, Teo. and watching guys like Teo and, and Barkley slip and Geno Smith come Geno out Smith, of that yeah. room and when is all that going to happen. But look, it, it it's always going to be around this time in April, the NFL draft. It's a big event now. It's a huge event. Right. I seen a poll where more people were in the month of April excited for the NFL draft than opening day of Major League Baseball season. That sounds right, yeah. So, I mean, that's just what it is and – you know, if you're wondering, which I doubt you are, what I thought of the Saints pick, uh, I hated it. You know, I'm never going to be <laughs> all that excited about the Saints picking a Texas guy, especially when the guy that made the most sense was still on the board. So, a little disappointed, but they did draft Oklahoma wide receiver Kenny Stills, who has a different colored mohawk usually every week. That's in cool. In the fifth round. It's, uh, the draft is a funny animal because it's this huge, huge, huge lead up. And then there's no payoff because we won't know. You can't really, I mean, everyone and their brother graded this draft online if you look, but you really won't know the grades until five years down the road. So uh, you never know, I guess. They'll talk about winners and losers, but you never know. And we'll talk more about the NFL draft with uh, Dave Damashek when he joins us a little later in the show. All right, that was our shared first thing. Our second thing is the, oh, yeah. 
you've probably heard this everywhere by now. It happened last night, on, or I think it's going to be in the upcoming Sports Illustrated that has yet to come right. out. But Jason Collins, a 34-year-old NBA center, has become the first openly gay athlete in any sport, really, at least of the major four U.S. sports. And uh, I think we both kind of said off the air, and in a sense, we mean this as sensitively as we can, but we just we don't care. Yeah. Not that we shouldn't have to care. I think that's good that as a whole, people aren't, this isn't Ellen coming out as an openly gay actress when she did, and it made crazy, crazy amounts of news, and it was a huge deal because it hadn't really happened until that point. Uh, hopefully, the rest of the players, his coaches, his teammates in the NBA, also will just be like, whatever, that's Jason. You know what I mean? So, I just, you know what? It just doesn't matter to me enough what right. someone does in their bedroom or on their personal time. Like, there's been rumors for years that the bass player for Pearl Jam is potentially gay. Okay. If that came true, that changes nothing. Yeah, I never heard that, but yeah, it doesn't It changes nothing to me me about the 70 amazing nights I spent watching them and the countless times their music has kept me company in hospital beds or wherever else. If someone said to me tomorrow Drew Brees was gay... That changes yeah, nothing cares? about the way I feel. Can about you still throw for forty five hundred yards? Yeah, it just doesn't matter to me. And you know, I might be a person who's maybe more right than left than you politically, but when it comes to social issues, I just yeah. that, that just doesn't register to me. It's none of my business. It's not political to me. I'm glad that hopefully this shows a sign of the times that he's comfortable enough to come out in the league, and hopefully he doesn't get beat up for it. Here's what I'm worried about, though. He's old. Yeah, the, I know and where he's you're going. a borderline player, right? In the league, if he doesn't, and he doesn't have a contract for next year, so if year, he gets caught or doesn't get, re-signed. so if he doesn't get a team, is it going to automatically be that he doesn't get a team because he was gay, or will there be people who are willing to say, no, he didn't get a team because he he's thirty-five years old right. and he's nothing but a twelfth or thirteenth man? Yeah, someone on Yahoo, I can't remember who, one of the football bloggers made the point about Chris Cluey, who's very outspoken about gay rights. He's not gay himself, but he's very much for... He's very liberal. Uh, he's also very entertaining. Follow him on Twitter. He's a good time. He's an entertaining guy. <clears throat> Talks a lot about like nerdy video game stuff and that, too. But he was talking about how he thinks his openness or his... Uh, accessibility or whatever and his other stuff online could cost him. could cost him a job because they just drafted a punter maybe the only one drafted and he thinks it's because of his mouth now the blogger does a good job to explain that chris cluey's do a raise next year and he's going to be making like two million dollars for a punter so it could just be that he's an average punter now that- the opposite i think of what we're both saying is now that i hope that if nobody signs him because he's not good enough, it doesn't turn into a conversation of no one signed him because he's gay. Okay, right. But the opposite of that is we're talking about a 12th guy. So if you're an NBA GM, I hope you don't look at two 12th guys who are equal and say, you know what, we're just not going to take the gay one because we don't want to deal with the circus. Right. Because it will be that. Right. It shouldn't be a PR move one way or like for the positive or for the negative. So hopefully we've had on, I can't remember his name, Patrick Burke. Brian yes, Patrick Brian Burke, Burke's yeah. son that does the it's U- his brother it's Brian Burke 
Brian Burke's son and his brother passed, passed away, away, who was right. openly gay. Or maybe not openly gay, he but was he open. was. Yep. Okay. Um, hopefully what this does is it just allows other... I don't know if this Jason Collins has worked with, I think it's called You Can Play, right? I don't know if yep. he's talked to them or done anything through them, but hopefully it invites other athletes. Hopefully, like like we said, we don't care. We mean that in a sensitive way, but we don't care. Hopefully that's the way this is five years down the road and nobody cares. Oh, you're gay? Like it, just hopefully it's not news eventually. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, we're each going to – I guess my third thing today will be different from Don's. Uh, we shared the first two, and I'm going to stick with the NBA, and I'm going to say that – I, you know, I asked Lee Jenkins this last week. Did the NBA make a mistake going from best of, uh, best of five to best of seven in the first round? And it's kind of hard to say the way the first round has played out so far that they haven't. Um, there's sweeps everywhere, and if there's not sweeps, the series are three to one. I'll go through them real quick. Uh, Oklahoma City leads Houston three, three to, to one, one. Um, and that was almost a sweep. That was a right, two point 105, loss. One hundred five, one hundred three. Uh, San Antonio uh, swept the Lakers. The Lakers humiliated themselves in the playoffs. Uh, Golden State is up 3-1 to one on Denver, which is potentially uh, the only upset in a non-4-5 series. Um, a 4-5, we have tied 2-2. No big surprise there with uh, the Clippers and, and the Grizzlies. Uh, the... The Miami Heat, they had a bye through the first round. <laughs> you know, that was a sweep. Uh, the Knicks are killing the Celtics. Celtics got one win there at home. That's 3-1. to one. And now Brooklyn and Chicago is 3-2. to two. That's, had, that's been the best series. They've had, they had a classic uh, game um, a couple days ago uh, over the weekend that went three overtimes and was a legendary I think I think it was like 140 to 139. It was an insane wow. uh, a game. And then uh, Indiana and Atlanta is two to two. But just a lot of lopsided series and a lot of series just not worth talking about. And then the few that are worth talking about, you know. And I don't know. The second round might start tomorrow. For all I know, with the way the NBA <laughs> is just not afraid because the NBA doesn't recede. So when a, c- a series is ready to go, they pretty much get it started if it fits in TV. You know what? I've always said that the NHL should go to a bracket because part of the reason the NCAA is so popular basketball is because you can bet on it and you can, everyone makes their brackets and it's almost a bigger deal now than the actual games themselves. But I, the NBA does and I don't know anyone that fills out an NBA bracket, so I guess maybe that wouldn't help hockey. And it can be such a huge disadvantage if it falls a certain way. Well, right. It works for basketball because the favorites almost always so win in the first top round. Yeah. Right. Mike Shopa, we've had on before as a local Buffalo sports radio guy here. He always suggests that the playoffs, instead of seeding them one to eight, the number one team should pick their opponent, and then the number two picks their opponent. I think that'd, that'd be, be awesome. But they would never. They yeah, would never too do much that. bulletin board material there. Yeah. Um, right. My last thing I talked about Patrick Burke, and uh, I'm going to talk about his father Brian Burke. He's in the middle of uh, something that hasn't gained much momentum yet, but could be phenomenally interesting. And he has sued 18 internet commenters over rumors that he was fired because of an affair. Now. As an internet commenter, if you've ever read any internet comments, the, the worst people on the planet 
comment on articles and comment on YouTube videos and comment on this stuff basically anonymously, not with their like their name isn't attached right to it. Uh, I mean, how this would be mind blowing if if internet commenters are held accountable for their words and if they're they're not reporters. I can't see this holding any water. Uh, you basically have freedom of speech. These guys. These are the hardest things to win. Too. This I can't believe he wants to waste money on this. This isn't libel. This is thrown this out isn't right away. This isn't slander. Right? These are not people that are in the news. These aren't public figures saying this. One of the guy's names, I believe, was Pooner Man. And that's one of the guys he's trying to sue. And something sexy ice or something like that. I mean, these are the guys he's trying to sue. It's just, this has got to be an impossible case. But if on the off chance anything does become of this, that'll set a crazy precedent for anybody out there on the internet. I, I would love to see him just maybe focus a little bit more on who's going to be on Team USA and Sochi next year. Yeah. You know, that just seems maybe more pressing to me. I, I would agree. And I guarantee that Toronto Maple Leafs did not fire him based on that. A He's not claiming alleged that, though, affair. Right? Well, that's what, what, the, what came first, the chicken or the egg? The commenters commented or said there was a rumor that he was fired because of an affair. Oh, okay. So he's already fired. He was already fired. So this is They a, didn't claim he was having an right. affair. They claimed that's why he was fired. Oh, brother. Yeah, so I can't see this holding water. But, I mean, if the off chance, some crazy circumstances, this did hold any water, that would set a wild precedent for the Internet. And he was the GM of the Maple Leafs. Where is this being tried? In the United States? Or I, I don't know that it's being tried anywhere. I don't yeah. know if it's just in the <laughs> accusatory. I'm guessing it never makes it to trial. Yeah, if you're I'm pro- guessing Pooner Man isn't losing <laughs> sleep about this. All right. Well, I'm excited that we got Ed Cunningham, Dave Damashek, and Jonah Carey on the show. So let's uh, get to it. We'll be right back with our first ever Academy Award winner. Sweet. Our first guest today is from Washington, D.C., and played college football at the University of Washington, where he won a national championship in 1991. He went on to play in the National Football League for the Arizona Cardinals and Seattle Seahawks before becoming a broadcaster. He's called football games for TNN, ESPN, CBS, and ABC. He has also produced two documentary films, including the award Academy Award-winning Undefeated. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today, a warm Sportscasters, welcome to the multi-talented Ed Cunningham. How are you doing today, Mr. Cunningham? Good, Steve. Please call me Ed. All right, Ed. I feel old. Uh, it sounds good. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for doing this today. We're excited to have you on the show. I, you know, it's I'm kind of a, a, a documentary freak, and, and we'll de- we'll definitely get to that, you know, in in in, in a little bit. But it was it was crazy to me when. Uh, I talked to to Zachy Score or Sooner Zach or the many things we've called him over the years, and we should thank him. <laughs> the Blue Horseshoe. Yeah, we should thank him for setting this up uh, uh, for us. No, but, uh, we should never thank him. Never thank him. No, okay. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it was amazing the two documentaries that you've been associated with are two of my favorites, and I'm not just saying that because you're on. I mean, it was incredible when I when I read your bio, having no idea you had anything to do with documentaries. Um, and and those were the two that that it was, but we'll, we'll get we'll get to that in a second. But I, I just wanted to say how ironic that was. You know, uh, I mentioned that in 1991 you won a national championship, and actually, just a couple weekends ago, I got to watch my brother win a national championship in hockey. 
in Pittsburgh. Oh, congratulations! Yeah, That's cool. And, and it was an incredible experience. And I have to say, one of, you know what I think made it so great was being able to sit there for six minutes and and, and looking up and looking up and looking up, still for nothing, still for nothing, and knowing it was going to happen. And I wonder how that was different from your experience winning a national championship in Washington, which was actually a split national championship, and there was no actual national championship game, and and kind of how that made. Yeah, it. no, but we still had we still had that kind of time. But I, I, yeah, of course it would have been great. You know, everyone wants to just tear the cannot wait for the BCS to be done. I would have loved for the BCS to have been around when I was in college because it was clear we were, Miami. And Washington were both undefeated. We were clearly right. number one and number two. Um, you know, and that was really pre-anything. That was pre-Bowl Alliance or any of that. So it was, they played in the Orange Bowl and we played in the Rose Bowl. And um, But we had that for a while. We, we played very well that day and, and we felt like we were the best team in the country. So, we, yeah, we didn't have quite the countdown like your brother did. But um, we all were waiting because it was the AP and the coaches uh, poll, the USA Today coaches right. poll back then. And so I forget which one. I frankly forget which one we won now. <laughs> Whenever that call came, it was still cool, but it was like 6 in the morning. Yeah, you guys So people were calling ball. each other rooms. We'd been up, you know, having a good time the night before. And um, I guess it was a little anticlimactic. Thanks for bringing me down. I appreciate it. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I, I just kind of wondered, like – as someone who 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 covers college football, if, as, and like you said, everyone's looking forward to the BCS going away, you know. But now we're going to have a new system with a semifinal and a final, very similar to what I witnessed in Pittsburgh a couple weekends ago with the Frozen Four. And I was just right. curious how you how you think that's going. I mean, is this like are we all going to be able to love this now, or are we still going to be like, well, it should have been a final eight? I think. Uh... I think it's impossible, frankly. I think that if you were go- if you needed to determine and say without, without maybe one every twenty years, we'll have a question that the best team won during the tournament. Because remember, not always the best team of the year wins the tournament at the end of the season. I mean, we see that in the NFL all the time. So that's the other thing too. It's like what 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 champion are you trying to find? I think four is the perfect number for every reason. I think it's perfect because. It, it, it's a logical expansion of where we are, and the game is expanding. I do, I do want to start having conversations about pulling back on the regular season and some of the bonus games. Fifteen games, sixteen games is just ridiculous for these young guys. But that aside, I think eight is the only number that you could say gets rid of every third or fourth year, saying what in the world that team belongs in. Because I think the difference between four and five. Um, the difference between one and two and four and five, I think, is, is very narrow some years. And I think quite a few years it's pretty narrow. And especially that five, six, seven range, guys, you know, teams that are right on the edge. So I don't think four is perfect to get rid of the argument, but I think four, four is perfect for w- what the sport is and keeps it fairly manageable and, and you know, I, th- I think does ultimately give what the fans wanted because this is, I, I think, really a direct result of what the fans have been asking for. Um, for for years and it's gotten louder uh, recently, obviously with the internet and social media and all that. So I think it's a pretty natural slide. And for me, I think it's kind of perfect for where we where the sport felt like it was headed. Yeah, and I I don't know if you heard, but it was the coaches poll that you guys won, and Miami won mm. the AP poll. Um, but uh, what do you do? With, where's your ring? Where's your national championship ring? Well, it's funny. Uh, 
I'll share a story. I, I, I get, I, my best friends, uh, on the road are the guys, you know, the guys who camera guys and all that. I just like to go hang with those guys in the room and have a beer. And I found out that one of the crews I worked, I used to wear it on the air and, um, I kept it in this really kind of just gross looking box. that looks like a pair of earplugs go in it so that if everyone, anyone ever went into my bag, it, you know, just, you wouldn't even uh, pick it out. But it is now in that box, which it looks like nothing in my uh, medicine cabinet because the guys on this crew made fun of any announcers who wore what they called super hardware on their finger because they felt like it was uh, kind of too bling bling. So mm. I, a crew I had a couple of years ago had me stop wearing it on the air. But it, it's, it shamed you, it's huh? safely It's safely stashed in my medicine cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to check, but I, I think the coolest thing in my medicine cabinet is probably toothpaste. But uh, so you move on from there and, and you get to play, you know, in the show, as they call it, the National Football League for the Cardinals and the Seahawks. Anything specific stick out a story you'd like to share about you know maybe what it was like to play your first game or, or your biggest moment in, in the national football league <sighs> wow you know i've always i've always given the fun answer because i played for kind of terrible teams most of the time mm-hmm. um but i think uh you know something that was really fun was um i grew up football became important to me because of the washington redskins um, and I was in high school when they had the Hogs, which were Joe Bugle, who was Boss Hog, of course, based off of the old Dukes of Hazard show, uh, who I ended up being drafted by. He was the head coach in Arizona when I was drafted there. But my when I started playing, I never played football before I got to high school because I was just too big. Cause it was all weight limit in my area. Right. So I, when I was in fifth grade, I would have been playing with eighth graders, and that just wouldn't have worked out so well. So. Uh, I didn't play till I was in high school, and the, the Redskins just owned the town. They were flamboyant and fun, and the, the the focus of the team was the offensive line. And I was a big kid, and I'd been I was tall, but I'd been heavier, you know, quasi chubby when I was a little kid, and so I knew I could gain weight. So I just wanted to be an offensive lineman because of the Hogs. Well, when I was with the Cardinals, we had we flirted with being really good <clears throat> in a couple of years. Um, uh, that you know, I think I regret not being a little better of a leader at that time but we actually i was uh i was on the winning side of all of the games we played at old rfk mm. against the redskins and so i got to come home i think i think i started in r i didn't start my rookie year i can't remember but i started three games there and i was two and one at rfk which was the first place i'd ever seen an nfl game with my dad when i was a kid you know sitting in the rafters and eating peanuts and you know really understanding what professional sports were about so that was cool i got that was that was i had a winning record at rfk you know i was talking to a friend recently who uh played college hockey and then played a little minor pro hockey and, and then you know he, he was he was talking to me about how for so long he was a hockey player everything about him was being yeah. a hockey player and then when it ended he, he was just talking about what a tough time he's really been hard. having you know figuring out what he is now. And I guess for you, you had the transition where you went from being that football player to being someone who was still involved in the game by covering it, either for TNN or ESPN or CBS. Do you think uh, the transition to broadcasting helped kind of bridge that gap for you? And and is that why you maybe took to broadcasting like you did? Um, I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of different narratives that could come out of the transition. Uh, But I think foundationally, I was very lucky early on in that, I had coaches that um, 
were very, very skilled. I, I went to a public high school in Alexandria, Virginia, and it just turned out that there was this amazing coaching staff uh, already in place with a program from the freshman football team that was the same as what they ran on the varsity, and it was a whole buy-in by the community and all of that. But aside from being its own little kind of mini football like powerhouse, not many. I mean, we were a powerhouse in Northern Virginia uh, when I was in high school. Our coaches, you know, that was, that was back in the day when our coaches were history teachers and they were, you know, the head coach was the athletic director, but he had been a history teacher and a math teacher and all these people. And these are our coaches. And then the people around our program, the kind of medical staff and volunteers, they also push us very hard in the classroom to do well in class and do things outside of football so for me, football was always just an activity, and, and, and sports was always just an activity. It was just a part of my whole education, and I loved it so much, and I'm not saying I didn't kind of OCD focus on it for much of my probably 16, 17 to 26, 27 when I left the game, because you have to to play at that level, right. but I always did other stuff. I always had other interests, and, and I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, so you know that's what my producing is now for me, is I'm an entrepreneurial um, guy in, in, in film and television. That's what a producer is. And so I've always been very lucky that the coaches and support system in my family just made sure I had real balance when it came to sports um, so that I could, you know, that uh, I was given that. And then the, the thing that just happened, I think, um, out of blind luck was um, just I started getting microphones. We were Remember, it was, ESPN was just becoming a big deal in the late 80s, early 90s, where it was starting to be shown in, in multiple millions of homes. It was starting to have a national footprint. It was also when they were sending remote reporters out. Well, since we were the number one or number two teams for two years in a row, because we'd been in the top five the year before, the ESPN truck was at our place a lot. We had the best player in the country in Steve Entman. So there were stories about him maybe in the Heisen race, but he was a defensive lineman. So... I just kind of became a spokesman because I could, I just had a way to kind of do it. And I paid attention to what a soundbite was. And then I got very interested in what the guy behind the camera was doing. And so I was very lucky when I left the NFL, not only did I have uh, a want to be in broadcasting, I had dozens of hours of practical experience. I hosted my own radio show while I was playing in the NFL. I started uh, covering the arena football league on the CW61 in Phoenix, Arizona, for the Arizona Rattlers, Rattlers local yeah. broadcast. I did that when I was playing in the NFL. So I actually built a, a, a big resume before I came out. So I think some of it was planned. I think some of it was knowing that football would end. And I think, um, but I think also it was just kind of the luck of being around the right people that helped me realize I could be great at football and I could be you know, I could get the other stuff done and make that an important part of my life as well. So I was, I was very, very fortunate. Yeah. And, you know, is it all those things that you've talked about that kind of led you into film? Um, Having the different experiences with the behind the scenes crews and things like that. Like, Yeah, there's no doubt that that um, um, when I first, you know, I mentioned that I hang out with a lot of the camera guys uh, that I work with, uh, you know, from day one, when I walked onto a network set when I my first network job, meaning everybody in the country is going to see your broadcast. Cause I'd done a bunch of local stuff up to that point. Um, excuse me, but the first, uh, national broadcast I went on, um, 
I'd already been in production trucks. I'd already been around it. And so I knew these guys and I just, I'm, I just, I, if you've, if I tell people this all the time, if you've never been inside a live television, uh, sports television production truck during the broadcast, it's, it's just mayhem. It's the coolest thing in the world. Um, and so I just kind of got, I got a rush out of being in the truck. And so I go visit sets and work behind the scenes. I've produced stuff for some of the camera guys. If, they needed me to. And, and so I've always just been hands-on and fascinated for sure. So, um, but the first thing I ever did, uh, really in this business was, uh, as a broadcaster. So that's kind of, you know, how I started. I, I started first thing I ever did was a, a radio show. So that was my start. And I think that informed radio and you know, this on a pod, podcast, uh, even more, th- it is a really nice form of storytelling. Radio just, I think, is a, a great way to learn, um, kind of to edit yourself and 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 know how to to shorten and expand and, and those types of things. So my my background, I like to think, is mostly in radio because uh, I think I took a lot from that. The sportscasters, a few minutes left here with Ed Cunningham, former national champion, NFL player, and someone who's I kind of look at it like this. So let's called the king of kong your national championship and undefeated making it to the show um you, know, <laughs> you can kind of make that i i think you know that's a, i think that's a pretty fair uh pretty fair connection yeah yeah uh, geez i don't even know king of king of kong it, it, it am i okay to say that it's kind of like almost the like a cult kind of got a kind of a cult following yeah of, of yeah i think i mean i you know one of the crazy things that's come out of that movie um is uh there's a lot of art there's like these art installations now eight-bit art installations and a lot of it will be you know king of kong related stuff and there's just this kind of artistic thing and it's been you know south park did an episode that was kind of loosely based on the movie um 30 Rock, you know, the character who wears the hats, uh, had a hat that referenced the movie. So it's had this nice little kind of cultural thing. And what's cool is these kind of fan-based um, uh, comedy troops are doing musicals, kind of spoof musicals of the movie now. So I think it's, I don't know who gives the title of cult film or cult classic or whatever, but I don't know. It's pretty cool to see some of that stuff out there in the world. And it's one of those I think when you when you're just sitting around it with a bunch of guys and, and talking about like w- what should I watch on Netflix? It's just one of those that always kind of comes up, you know. I think that if if you're into documentaries, it's just one. Even though the topic might be, not be the first thing you would think of for one of the better <laughs> documentaries since 2007, but it just it always comes up, always comes up. Before I oh, heard, that's well, that's good to hear. I, I you know. I'm I'm very uh I'm very proud of what we did on that film and um I think in many ways it it educated me I've gotten way more out of that movie um than than I could ever imagine just from learning because early on in Hollywood that film people loved it and they really wanted to do business with us and so there was kind of this great opportunity for me as a producer I learned the business very quickly on a high level because we you know, made something that was kind of cool and people it had value. So um, I owe that film a lot. That thing, that film's done a ton for for both my career and and Seth Gordon, the director's career as well. It's it was a it was a neat thing for us to have accomplished. Now with Undefeated, I, I mean, I don't know how you exactly determine success, but I, I know that 
one good way to determine success would be to say this film won the Academy Award for best documentary <laughs> yeah, in, film. In, in film and television, that's right. It. That'd be a great way yeah. to. But did you? Did, was it challenging to to get the film to people? Because I know I had heard about the film way before I had the opportunity to watch it. Living in Buffalo, it never played in yeah. a theater here, as far as that's I always, know. That's always the issue with documentaries. Yeah. You know, it's, um, well, it, it, that one in particular, um, we ended up going into business with a company called the Weinstein Company uh, for di- distribution in the United States. And the Weinstein Company is a big movie company, and so they do care very passionate about, uh, passionately about titles like Undefeated. But the truth is, compared to their bigger films, they just can't put as much, they just, you know, companies only have so many people and they only have so many dollars. And, and so they're going to kind of triage every, you know, their assets towards their bigger, more expensive films. Um, but that, you know, it got out there pretty significantly and now it's out on DVD and video on demand and iTunes and all that. So yeah. it's finally, I think, starting to get out in a way that, um, it can, and it can find a little bigger audience and, um, you know, I, I wish it would have been a little earlier than that, but that's, it's just, that's the battle you fight with, with documentaries sometimes is, um, is getting them out there, but that's starting to change, you know, the business and, and how distribution happens. And a, a lot of smaller films now are doing video on demand the same day they're doing their theatrical release. Right. So that if the movie's only opening in 10 or 15 markets in the U S the 10 or 15 biggest and Buffalo doesn't get it, They'll also do something with the major cable companies where they also allow, you know, six or seven dollar video on demand the same the same day. So that's starting to come online. I think that's a really great service to really, frankly, the the consumer um, to be able to start seeing stuff like this uh, a little closer to when bigger markets get to see it, basically. And I know that. The DVD of Undefeated is available for sure at Walmart. I know it's available on iTunes now. And it deserves uh, a big audience. I hope people that do listen that haven't seen it yet take the opportunity. The only thing you have to be careful with is that you don't let Bill Courtney make you feel like you don't do enough. Yeah, Coach Courtney, who's the head coach at the Manassas High School uh, at the time we were filming, is uh, he's he's become a wonderful friend. And the nice part about him – you know, I, I like, like we were talking about a moment ago with the transition from playing ball, because it really does consume your life by the time you get to the professional level. Um, you know, I had guys like Bill Courtney who who were around me, and I had, you know, teachers that, you know, I, I remember I had an English teacher my senior year who she just challenged me in ways I'd never been challenged about story because we had to creatively write. And, you know, just I was lucky to have folks like that who – not only demand it of you, but they live it themselves. Because that's that's you know those are the best kind of teachers. So and and Bill Courtney is a good friend now, and we keep in touch. I will actually see him uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm going out to Memphis um, for uh, for some work, and and uh, I'll get to see him. He's he's a wonderful guy. Yeah, and it was a wonderful film. And uh, you know there there's a scene in there, and I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't uh, watched it yet but there's a scene where he gets to share a moment with his player with one of his players yeah uh that it just made me feel like wow like this is just incredible just incredible yeah i you know i give a lot of credit um the three i didn't have to move to memphis to shoot this i was more of kind of a overhead kind of executive guy on this film and the three young filmmakers that went down there the two directors and producer and uh, the 
their dedication to just showing up every day and filming everything was insane. I don't even know how many hours of footage they ended up with, but it was probably close to a thousand because they would shoot every day. And, uh, you know, not only did they have a great nose for story and, and really shoot the, the football scenes are shot incredibly well. We worked hard on that to get those right um, for what they had for their facilities. You know, they shot some of those games with two cameras and um, you know, they were just really smart about what they did, but the moments, the moments that they were able to get where in, in a documentary is so rare. And it's the thing we look for, frankly, in stories. Can we find these moments where real life literally unfolds in front of the camera? Because it's one thing to have interviews. It's one thing to have people recreate what happened or to go back to archival footage and all of that stuff. And, and, you know, there's ways to do that. But if you can find those moments and, and document them in, a, in lives like these young men have to live in North Memphis, um, I think that's what made, makes the film really special is you're, you're just there. Well, we're not going to find out from you on Twitter because you're not there for some reason. I wish I could talk you into it. But um, what is <laughs> – How do you know I'm not on Twitter? Uh, Zach told me. Yeah, I, I actually have a handle. It's just so I can read other people's stuff. Ah, I see. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what's uh, what's coming down the pipe? Anything we can look forward to? Or yeah, absolutely. And I'll reach out uh, so you can throw it on the podcast. We yeah, are going sure. to launch a Kickstarter campaign for a new film uh, project. That it's actually a story I've been chasing. I first heard it in two thousand seven. Uh, which was the fall after Kong, King of Kong came out. So we've been filming since the spring of 2008, but we just had a few events happen that will help us finish the film, and we're actually going to do a Kickstarter campaign for it. So I will uh, I'll reach out. I can't give you any more than that because okay, it's yeah. all coordinated, the launch. Uh, but, um, yeah, I'll make sure through <clears throat> Zach, the Blue Horseshoe, Yes, uh, I'll make sure that... He knows uh, to send you the uh, link and all that. Yeah, definitely. The Veronica Mars route. <laughs> from, from your lips to our bank account's uh, <laughs> back pocket. <laughs> but we're just, we're just trying to make a small box. So uh, uh, our goal coming out is actually under 100 grand because we can, we can get a rough cut of the film for, for about that. So. But we have a bigger goal out there. But we're going uh, to have some fun. We'll have some cool giveaways, too. We'll have a bunch of stuff from Kong. Uh, Bill Courtney's writing a book, and we're going to pre-sell some books with uh, personal uh, message autographs in them. So we'll have some cool, some cool giveaways for the donations uh, in this. It'll be fun. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, make sure you let us know because we'll definitely uh, let everyone else know about the Kickstarter and uh, all those things. So thank you, thank you very much, uh, Ed, as you uh, told me to call you there. In the <laughs> so. Cool. Thanks, Stephen. Glad to finally be on with you. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right, definitely want to thank Ed Cunningham for making his Sportscasters debut. A lot of fun speaking with him about all of the different things he's accomplished in his life. Real quick book club update uh, this week. Just two things I wanted to mention. One, one last time I wanted to mention Phenom, The Making of Bryce Harper by Rob Mish. Uh, basically the same book that was featured last year. It was called The Last Natural then. It's about Bryce Harper's year playing junior college baseball in Nevada. And that is now on paperback with a new chapter and um, a new title. And you can find out more information by following Rob at Rob, M-I-E-C-H. Another thing I wanted to mention in the update today is another one of our book club books of the month from last year. 
was released on paperback today, and that's One Shot at Forever by Chris Ballard, which is one of the better books that have ever been featured in uh, the book club. And that book also has a really nice-looking new cover. Um, So I wanted to mention one more time Phenom, The Making of Bryce Harper, and mention that in stores now is the paperback version of One Shot at Forever by Chris Ballard. So check those out. And then next week we'll get something going for a new book club book of the month for the month of May. We'll be right back. All right. Our next guest is from my new favorite city in the entire world, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of Indiana University. And at this point needs really no introduction onto this podcast. He is the main man, Dave Damashek. What's up, Dave? Hey, what's happening, fellas? Muzzle tov to you. We kibitzed um, with uh, one one of the various means of 21st century um, communication right after your brother won the NCAA. What is the trophy for the hockey award? What do they it's call it? It's a beautiful it's the same as the what same all as the, the other one, yeah. NCAA ones are. You know what I mean? It doesn't have. A, oh, it's, it's just that dumb plate. Yeah, it's like of... a yeah, it's like a brown wooden thing with glass in the middle. And then the one cool thing is, is they gave my brother and all the other players a miniature version of it that's their own, and they also gave him a really nice watch that says "National Champions." So. That's kind of cool. cool. Muscle tub, I know, was and uh, it was an exciting thing. I enjoyed watching it from afar, following you on Twitter, and um, that had to be obviously pretty cool. But we got to do something better about that award. That's terrible. It's just that piece of brown wood with a little <laughs> cheapo gold stuff. We got to figure that out, NCAA. That's, I guess that's uh, we can add that to their list. That should be number one seventy three on a list of things the NCAA needs to fix. But all right, let's not be bummers. This yeah, is a great A-plus to Pittsburgh. I mean, a great city for it. it the city was into it. Um, you know, the first the first day is weird because there's the four fan bases there. So, like, Yale played in the first game, and, you know, the Quinnipiac fans and the, and the um, uh, St. Cloud fans weren't there yet. So there was the two corners were empty. You know what I mean? So it kind of was like sure. a little weird that during that game. And then I'm sure for their game, like all the Massachusetts Lowell fans were gone for sure. And then there was like some Yale fans stuck around. But on Saturday, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. And, and the building was packed and it was it was unbe- I I don't know. I don't have I don't I have nothing to compare it to. Uh, I've been, you know, I'm 11 years older than my brother and watching his hockey career. And I've watched him lose four state championships and two prep finals. And he's got more second place trophies than the Bills and Buffalo and Cleveland and any other second place (laughs) cities combined. And I was prepared. I had the speech ready for him. And, you know, I was glad instead I got to meet him outside the hotel and sob on his jacket and after the winter I had it was it was the best experience of my life I didn't think any could anything could ever pass Tracy Porter but that did (laughs) well yeah I I know from uh, what you were going through in the winter and um as a as a Buffalo guy yeah that what I mean you must your head must have been spinning wait a second someone from Buffalo (laughs) won something they actually won 
there's no one else to beat. We're the best. We're number one. That's uh, that's got to be hard to fathom. But um, and, and then you do it in the city of champions, and I'm glad you enjoyed uh, my hometown. So so good for that, and glad to hear that. Yeah, the building was rocking. That I mean, it really is a remarkable thing. You know, baseball is pretty well entrenched, football and basketball. But in the U.S., it still is interesting that every city that has a hockey team hasn't been a dyed-in-the-wool hockey town for the last 100 years or anything. And Boston, when Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito started winning Stanley Cups, that turned Boston into a hockey town enough that there are still guys coming out of that region that are NHL players that, you know, you know, youngsters picked up the game around mm-hmm. the uh, around those cups in the same way. Pittsburgh now in the early 90s, you know, the Lemieux and all those teams that inspired a generation of Pittsburghers to start putting on skates and playing hockey that, that just did not exist. Um, including previous the, to that and now there are nhlers coming right. out of the, i mean off the banks of the three rivers which is unheard of or at least it was until uh until about 10 years ago or first line centers for the national champions in jesse root who scored the overtime goal in the first game against the university of minnesota and scored the empty hmm. net goal in the national championship game he's a pittsburgh native as well so definitely yeah special weekend for him i'm sure to be able to uh win the national championship at home uh, you know, it's a beautiful arena too, console. And um, yeah, it I, ain't right that you've been to more games there than I have. I've never <laughs> been to any game in console. I got to get out there. Somebody's yeah, got to console me until I get to one of those. I've been to three now, and the first one was the Sabres Penguins game. Sabres won. I sent you. There's a really cool thing which I know they stole from Minnesota, but who cares? Where there's just about every high school in the state's jersey um, mm-hmm. along, and for the NCAA tournament in the front. Uh, lobby, they had all the NCAA teams' jerseys. It's kind of an added touch, which was cool. And they also have, i got to give them props, a grade A first aid staff, which <laughs> I had. <laughs> the, when the first game, the semifinal game, I don't want to get too graphic, but I do have an open wound still because my surgeon decided it would be best for my wound to heal from the inside out as opposed from the outside in. So, you know, it's the opposite of what you would think. So it has to be packed with stuff and after the overtime goal scored by Andrew Miller uh in the celebration I looked down and all of the packing had fallen to the ground so I had to go to the first aid and get repacked up oh I thought you were going to say like you poured champagne into it or something which I don't <laughs> that know if stung. that's advisable yeah, no that would have stung Celine well is- the old igloo if that had been true at the old igloo they had the best nachos I've ever had at a sporting <laughs> event Maybe you could have just used some of that congealed cheese and, and stuffed that in there, too. Yeah, Either way. That would have been very advisable. Well, yeah. you, you spent some time that, at the draft in, in New York. is perfect segue. Uh, <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah. Uh, what? How about all those tackles, huh? You must have been fired up to see all those tackles come off the board. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was underwhelming right at the very top there, but you kind of knew that that's what was coming. And the trade-off was going to be depth in the draft. And, you know, as somebody who at NFL Network, you know, you kind of almost get into that, you know, not as a fan, but from the perspective of what the network wants and what makes it compelling into day two and day three, you couldn't ask for much more than for day one to wrap. I mean, the first round of the NFL draft is going to be interesting no matter what. Every fan base is going to be interested to see who their new guy is, even if it is a left tackle. 
But by the end of the first round, you would you, you looked at it, and I said um, to some guys, I was I was as we're walking out of Radio City that night. I said, "Who uh, if I if we went and took a straw poll around New York City to very casual fans and said, "Hey, name as many college football players who are eligible for the draft as you can." Almost every name that would have come up would still be on the board. Right, Matt like Barkley, Geno yeah. Smith, Marcus Lattimore, Manti Teo. Yeah. So it, it so it really um, so you knew that you know it was what you what you lost in excitement in the short term. You knew would be made up for when because it really is a grind. You know, having been on there, you know, for days one, two, and three. You really are kind of like, hey, you can't. There's not a whole lot to say about round five. You know, there's not. There's not. Like, you can't go around and ask people in Radio City fans of teams like, hey, what do you think about that uh, that right tackle you just took out of North Carolina, AT and M? You know, that was a, nobody has an opinion on any of it. So it was nice for once to see some uh, some recognizable names hanging around. There. Well, you must have been happy that instead of taking a perfect outside rushing linebacker for the new 3-4, the Saints instead passed and took a criminal from Texas, and thus the Steelers were able to take said rushing <laughs> outside linebacker Jarvis Jones, so you must have been happy about that. I guess. I liked it. Everybody says he's going to be great, and we had on, uh, on, on my podcast that we did earlier today um, our pal Daniel Jeremiah, who is uh, who's about as good a you know a personnel yeah, move evaluator the as there is. Yeah, the move the stick. Yeah, at move the sticks. He's a he's a good guy, and um, he made an interesting point that will be compelling at least to um, to fans of a certain region, the Rust Belt region of our country. He said, you know, Jarvis Jones is a guy who in workouts was completely underwhelming. He wasn't very good um, with his 40 time or anything else. But you look at his productivity when the games are going on and he's dynamite. The Browns, on the other hand, took Barkevius Mingo, who has a great name, of course, Mingo. And, uh, but he was a workout phenom, but really wasn't all that productive at, uh, at LSU. And by the way, they're both from, L- from the SEC, so they're playing the same teams. One of the guys taken by the Cleveland Browns, who generally don't do much on the field, and the Pittsburgh Steelers, who usually are successful on the field, took the guy who's productive on the field. So that's an interesting <laughs> thing to track over the long haul to see how those two guys wind up and what it does for the two teams. But I wish they would have taken Bar- uh, uh, Tyler Eifert, the tight end out of Notre Dame, mm-hmm. the Steelers I'm talking about, because I'm not so confident in what uh, Roethlisberger has as far as weapons go this year. But uh, I, you know, people seem high on the third round pick that they got out of Oregon State, Marcus Wheaton, and we'll see if he can fill the shoes of Mike Wallace. But let's remember, Mike Wallace wasn't all that great himself in Todd Haley's offense last season. So, um, yeah, so so, uh, the Steelers don't traditionally drop in a a defensive player as a rookie and and have him starting, but the, the cupboard is just about bare. So in this case, they might start Jarvis Jones from day one. Real quick, do you think I'll be pleased with Keenan Lewis? I loved Keenan Lewis. I, the, the only thing I would caution you against getting too excited about is it, the New England Patriots and Pittsburgh Steelers are the two examples of are, are the two franchises that free agents who leave those two places don't generally go on to the same level of success. But you know, I mean, you, you can go through it. You can count them on one hand. The guys who did leave 
those teams and went on and and were still you know uh, were as good as they had been with the with those two teams. Uh, but Keenan Lewis, he's a big guy, he's physical, he's good. He, you know, Ike Taylor is the guy who Steelers fans are familiar with and have been for a long time as their version of a shutdown corner. But anybody who watched the games can tell you that Keenan Lewis was the superior corner last year. And yeah, I was bummed to see him go. They just, uh, you know, it was a cap issue. Is the only reason they right. couldn't keep him. Yeah, Lewis, and I know he's excited because, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's a New Orleans guy, so he yes. was excited yep. to head down. Now, is there anything like, I mean, we get plenty of great coverage between what the NFL Network does and just to an extent what ESPN does of the draft. And what about being there for the three days? Is there anything you can share with us that's kind of interesting that happens that we wouldn't know about? Um, It's, uh, you know, it's fun, sort of in like what you're talking about with the fans at the, of various teams at a, at a hockey tournament or, you know, I've been the the hoops tournament and it is interesting how fans come and go i mean as you would expect it's it's great to see those gaggles of fans seated in the various parts and the way they rise up as their pick draws near um that's interesting you know going back in the green room where all the players are hanging out with their families that to me is what stands out it's hard to be cynical um about that experience for those 21 year old kids and while your heart breaks for Geno Smith, who's sitting there with, you know, probably 10 members of his family. It's really, you know, it's kind of sad. You know, all right, all right so fine. So it's a minor. He's been a, a superstar for the last uh, several years of his life. He's been the BMOC, and now he's going to be a millionaire in New York City. So it's hard to feel too bad for him. But that 12 hours must have sucked pretty bad, you know, in right. between the end of one and the start of round two. Um, but it's a, such a cool moment to watch these guys. You see it in person to to watch these guys. I mean, you know, it's better than an Academy Award or uh, or a Grammy or something because those people are already successful people. This is the cherry on top of what they've already done. This is 21-year-old kids who most of whom aren't rich or anything to begin with. And you and even though they know they're going to get drafted, the moment where their name is announced and they're you know it's over, they did it. They've made it to the NFL. It's pretty cool to watch them embrace their mother and say you know the the sort of relief of the player and then the the, the joy of the mama throwing her arms around her boy. It's pretty cool. And then also sort of upsetting because I realized I've never given my parents anything close to a moment like that, <laughs> and I felt sad about myself. But. Uh, uh, that was pretty good. Yeah, I was going to say, I give Geno Smith credit for coming back the next day and taking the walk across the stage and taking the jersey. Because I remember there was a guy last year, I can't remember exactly who it was, who babied out and wouldn't come the next day to get his jersey in round two because he didn't get drafted. I don't know if either of you guys remember who that was, I but don't. it was somebody. Well, who- yeah, I mean, that's happened over the years, but it's kind of hard. It, it, you can kind of see it because what I, I, I you know intuitively, but when you're, I'm sure, watching it on TV. But when you're standing there and you're looking at them and you can, you know, these are people who are hoping to get a job that they really want to get and there are cameras all pointed in their face. It's pretty, it would be pretty stressful. It'd be a pretty, uh, pretty grim feeling to be staring at that. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's interesting. And by the way, it's also fun to watch the two. It's sort of like these uh, these two towers are set up overlooking the stage Um because you know the NFL network set up and then you know 40 or 50 feet away you have the ESPN 
setup, and they're virtually identical except for the people who are on the respective sets. For to, for my money, and I'm not being a shill, you know, I'll take Michael Irvin and Deion Sanders and Rich Eisen over Chris Berman and and you know the collection that they throw out there any day of the week. Right, and Mayock's the best. Yeah, Mayock's phenomenal. Yeah. Mayock's really good. Although right. you know, I'm I was always a fan of Mayock's, but man, oh man, did he give me the business? I don't know if you caught the um, no. I jumped in on the NFL Network. A Mayock does a mock draft show. Right. On um, we did it on Tuesday and it aired a couple times before the draft and it was all the big boys. It was you know it was Eisen, okay. Irvin, all these guys out there. And then they drop uh, Damashek the Schnook into the mix to do the mock draft along with all these big guys. And Mike Mayock gave me the business like nobody's business. You know, like he really laid into me as the new guy and. This and that, and uh, and and I didn't appreciate it, so I took a swing at him, and <laughs> it went south from there. But yes, that aside, that was that was cool, and yeah, he obviously really knows his stuff. Me, on the other hand, you talk about behind the scenes, right where I uh, where I was uh, at one point on day one before the thing got going, before the draft got going. Chris Berman walks out, and he has his entourage around him um, of you know people who do the beehive or whatever that you call that nest uh, that sits atop his head <laughs> that are fixing that and his makeup. And he's a big guy. He's like six, four and fat, you know, and, and he just walks through and, and, you know, has this, uh, sort of like, like Aloha to anybody who he sees. <laughs> Aloha. He's I always, there's a draft. I, 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 I hear there's a draft today. I hear there's a draft today. He just says that, but he says it, I'm talking just within earshot. He's walking. He does not stop. Within <laughs> earshot of me, I hear him say the same line five times. He says, Aloha. I hear there's a draft tonight, huh? Aloha. I hear there's a draft tonight to everybody who he comes up to. And each time his entourage laughs loudly. It must be <laughs> sad to be in that entourage. Like, man, I have no dignity. You know? At least if it's. At least if you're a hanger-on of uh, George Clooney or someone like that, there's a cool factor. You're hanging on to Chris Berman. Ugh. Right. We're hanging on to Dave Damashak. We're laughing at all your jokes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's inhuman. That's right. downright uh, atrocious. Shame on you. So we're going to let you go in a couple minutes so you can celebrate baby Oprah's birthday. How old is huh. baby Oprah, by the way? Baby Oprah is six years old. Holy Six-year-old today, yes. No uh, longer a baby. She's the baby, yeah. though, right? She, yeah, she's yeah. the baby. No, we called her at times. We've called her Baby Lemieux, right? You know, um, and that's yeah. the last thing I wanted to ask you was Penn's playoff run starts tomorrow. You can't be intimidated by the Islanders at all because they stay. Well, except for I, this isn't. I understand that this isn't relevant in 2013 exactly. No one on either side. You going 93 on us? What's that? You going 93 on us? Well, yeah, no, I was just, that's what I was going to say. No, I'm sure, I bet you if you ask both sides, maybe five guys total would would know who David Volick is. Right. But that's just the latest. I mean, the Penguins have never beaten the Islanders in the playoffs. That's I mean, They have beaten every Patrick Division team. They've beaten the Flyers, Capitals multiple times, Rangers they've never lost the series to. They've beaten the Devils in the postseason. Never the Islanders. 0-3. Hmm. And I understand, again, that that's not relevant at all. But on the other hand, I don't like it. I don't like that number. And I, and it kind of spooks me a little bit. But, um, 
that's why that's why I hate the Islanders so much uh, because they've they've caused me so much pain over my lifetime. But um, but yeah, I mean, listen, if but it's a big if though. I, I I think they can get by the Islanders without Crosby. But this assumption that the Pens are just ready to roll whoever they confront if Crosby isn't a hundred percent. You know, listen, if the Penguins are right, if they are healthy, if Gino Malkin is finally back up to speed now, and Jimmy Neal's ready to go, and Latang is ready to go, and Crosby and so on. It still also has something to do, as we know from anybody who watched, who has watched the Penguins in the playoffs the last few years. Flurry, yep. Flurry kind of determines things, especially, you know, you look back to last spring, the softies, the back-breaking softies he was letting in consistently against the Flyers, I mean, I think there can't be anything, a bad interception by a quarterback or, or, you know, an error. I don't think there's anything more destructive to the psyche of a team than when the goalie, if you're playing sound in front of him and the goalie just lets in a softie or two, that just destroys the team. It changes the way they approach things, the way the, the way they behave in their own end and, and how aggressive they are in the other team's end. So if Flurry is right, and those other guys are healthy. The one thing that's emerged since they basically went out and got those mercenaries, Morrow and Aginla, um, you know, they, they have punch at every, at, you know, on every line. You yeah. know, they have their, they have legitimate, scary goal scorers on every line from from Sutter to, you know, to, to Morrow. I mean, that you know, even the youngster, Bo Bennett, Really, you can see he's he's got uh, worlds of skill, and that's you know that's one through four as they roll through their lines, or if they condense them to to go with three lines primarily um, for for the for the run here, whatever. I mean, they just got so much punch; it's hard to imagine them not getting theirs against anybody, against any system, against any against any goalie. So then it just really boils down to is Flurry gonna do his part and and at least be capable and consistent with. Uh, with uh, pucks that he should be stopping. All right, I got a question about the Penguins. It's probably way too early, but what do they do in the off season, win or lose? Because next year, Malkin and Latang enter the last year of their deals. Is there any way they trade one of those guys? Because the cap, the cap's going to go down too. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. I, this is all about um, you know with the big move that they made was last uh, off season with the with the deal so, of. Jordan Stahl. Yeah. I think that all, that's what created the room, hopefully at least, to, to retain those. I think that uh, Ray Shiro and company regard the core as flurry, and we'll, you know, uh, let's see how he gets through this spring, and that may change things. But, you know, let's assume flurry is all right. Crosby, Malkin, Latang, these are, you know, these are their, these are their key guys to them. And, um, you know, and, and Jimmy Neal uh, is in the fold now for for the relative long term. Um, other than that, I, I think that what they're going to try to do, the way it's set up, really, and they have um, they have great depth. Even giving up Joe Morrow to get Brandon to get Brandon Morrow, they have great depth at one position. I you know I, I'd like to think that Ray Shiro was cagey enough to draft in that way. They've got you know they're they're really deep among their ten best prospects. Eight are defensemen probably. Um, so the so, so the chance exists that they can do not just they that they could do next year at the trade deadline what they did at this one, which is flip those uh, flip where they have a surplus in the minors in exchange for uh, for those missing pieces 
as uh, you know on, on on the current team. But yeah, I mean, I I know that they have every intention that the stall deal was intended to set up the ability to keep Malkin and Latang. But you know, nothing's done until it's done. But you know, it's a shame. I will say, watching Latang. Two straight years, if it weren't for the health issues, although he did decline a little bit towards the tail end last season, he really could, you know, he could have won a Norris Trophy again this year. You know, he's a, it's it's eluding him, but um, you know, if he could stay healthy for a he's season, he's going to get one. He's going to get you a thing. Yeah. He's gonna, um, I mean, he covers so much ice for a guy who's not big. I mean, obviously, Zdeno covers a ton of ice, but that's because he's eight foot three. You know, uh, Latang does it on those wheels. I've been telling everyone whose team isn't in it, you know, if you want what's best for the NHL, I can't think of anything better than Pittsburgh and Chicago in the finals. I mean, if you just think about the markets and the stars and the, there's just, I, I Gary Bettman would do a backflip from New York to Pittsburgh to Which Chicago. Which is why we're back. You know, it's going to be Ottawa and Anaheim. Because <laughs> that always goes that way. Right. Other leagues have great success with that. They have, they have great fortune. The NBA had had pretty good luck with I mean you almost could have had Celtics Lakers every season in the 80s but they did at least those two teams played each other three times the matchup you most want to see almost never happens in the finals in, in, in the NHL if you think about it but yeah I mean if you got there are a lot of good ones out there I mean if you got the Rangers playing anybody that's good for the sport for obvious reasons but yes Penguins um, against the Kings, against the Stanley Cup, uh, Stanley Cup champs would be good. I don't think, obviously, the Wings are particularly good. Witness them sneaking in, but I mean, obviously, right. renewing that one would be cool. Or the Blackhawks, any of those would be good. No disrespect to any of the Canadian teams. I like when I, for me, if I don't have a rooting interest, I always want the fan base that cares the most to to win. But in this case, for the sake of the sport, after a second lockout in less than a decade. The best thing for the sport, I think you hit it exactly right. I think if you get uh, Penguins, Hawks, or at the worst, Bruins, Hawks, those those are the two, uh, or, or the defending champion, Kings. Any combination of those four will be good for Batman and company. Thanks so much for doing this, Dave. We'll talk to you soon. Fellas, a pleasure as always. I'm thrilled you're back up and running. And uh, Jonah Carey was on. Yeah, Jonah Carey and Academy Award winner Ed Cunningham. Holy hell. What a, <laughs> what a show you've turned this into. It's quite a thing. Welcome back to the airwaves. Glad I could be a part of it. Thanks, Dave. All right, well, even those who will occasionally not cocky from time to time, usually it's pretty unanimous that they have a pretty fantastic playoff. And as we record this on Tuesday, uh, day one of the NHL playoffs uh, will begin. And a cool thing I should say right off the top is that every single game in the first round of the playoffs will be on either the NHL Network, the NBC Sports Network, NBC or CNBC. So there isn't a game wow. that will be played yeah, in great. the first round that you can't watch I if didn't know that. you'd like to. As long as you have CNBC and the NBC Sports Network. which And especially in a strike-shortened year, if you haven't gone looking for it, then you hadn't seen any teams from the other conference in your hometown. Right. Because they didn't play each other. 
So that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, so every every game is on, including the three that start on Tuesday night and the four that well, we played on Wednesday. So let's start with the East because we're in the East and the Sabres are the number one seed again this year. No. 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 They're, they're not, even, not even in it. They're oh. closer to the number one uh, draft pick than yeah. the number one seed, I guess. Yeah, they're not in it. Not in it at all. Uh, no, actually, the Pittsburgh Penguins are the number one seed, and they've pretty much been the best team in this conference all all season long. And actually, they didn't lose a game in the month of February. That's amazing. They went undefeated in February. Well, I mean, there's only 28 days. Yeah, it's a short month. So, I mean, but asterisk next to that. Right, but they didn't lose a game that month until the big bad Sabres came to town early March. <laughs> That's that right. Uh, but... Um, they play the Islanders, and the coo- one really cool thing about this series is John Tavares is going to get to play some big games on big-time TV because yeah. uh, John Tavares might be the best player in the league that nobody's really watched play. And and he hasn't played a real significant game yet because this is the first time True, he's... Right. But, I mean, he might be already a top-ten player in the league, and everyone's going to get a chance to see him. And maybe the big question is going to be, Will the we get to see the number one player in the league in Sidney Crosby in this series? The Sounds like maybe not the first coy. game. Yeah, and if not, let's say he didn't play. Does that matter? I I mean, if you're asking for my pick, I wanted to talk myself into the fact that I feel like the Islanders are a scrappy, uh, young team that is going to give somebody trouble, like a high effort, high motor. I mean, I know it's all cliche, but. That type of team, they're going to outwork you. But no, I mean, unless Crosby misses significant time, I can't see how it matters. And uh, I picked Pittsburgh in five, and I'm not sure I would change my mind if if uh, Crosby played every game or missed every game. Really? Yeah, I think the 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 only way that the Islanders could realistically defeat the Penguins is if they can force a lot of overtime games and win them. <laughs> I mean that because that is something in the NHL playoffs that that can can flip a series is winning overtime games, right? Especially because, long ones. Yeah, and losing them can be deflating. Winning them can set a team, but they're going to have to win boring games that you know they get outshot two to one, and then but do they, they don't have the goal to do that? I don't think. No, so. the Islanders actually have given up the most goals in the playoffs. Yeah, so I, so that's going to be tough. They've scored a, a chunk, but not. They they can't keep up in a shootout, and they don't have the goaltending. There's you'd really have to work hard to find a reason to think they could upset, right? With or without Crosby, right? Uh, the Canadian series isn't the Canadian series that Canada wanted. It's, no. it's not the Leafs and the Canadians, but it is uh, the Canadians and the Senators, and it'll be fun for guys like me to watch Corey Conacher play some playoff games, which is pretty cool. Ottawa seemed to do everything they could right up until the last day of the year to almost try to play themselves out of this thing. Um, you know, they, out of this series, you mean? Uh, yeah, like just, Pittsburgh? Yeah, yeah, you don't want that either, though. It just seemed like they were like dying to be the eighth seed or something. <laughs> Actually, they were on the last day and ended up defeating Boston to avoid having to play Pittsburgh. But... This, to me, is a coin flip. I, I'm not sold on Montreal. I think they've lost a lot of their mojo. I don't think that they're the team that, I, I guess, put themselves in the position to be the seed that they are. Uh, I'm. This is the, the series I look at in the Eastern Conference as a potential 
upset. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if, if Ottawa beat Montreal. Um, but I, I'm not sure exactly if, if Craig Anderson is, is up to the task. If he can, if this is a seven gamer, is he healthy enough to play those seven games in, in 12 days and, and pull it off after missing almost two thirds of the season with an ankle injury? Yeah. The, the guy that was injured for a good chunk of the season too, that they are going to get back and they got back the last few games of Carlson. the season is Eric Carlson. And That's I think incredible. that might be enough. Well, yeah, people call them Wolverine because of his healing ability from that cut, but it's it's the lowest scoring team in the playoffs. But they missed Carlson for a lot of that. They made it without him. Everything you said about Montreal not being the most impressive team on the planet, uh, I totally agree with. Maybe it's a bias because most of the time I've seen them it was against the Sabers, who were a bad team, and the Sabers played really well against Montreal. I think Carey Price is going to have to be really good for them to win, and I actually picked Ottawa to win this series. I have them winning in about six games. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And I guess if I was going to – I didn't necessarily write down picks, but I, I probably would pick Ottawa in seven. Seven, yeah. yeah I think that – yeah. That, or no, they'd be on the road, right? Right. I just – I don't know. I just feel like they'll just have a little bit of an edge. Uh, a popular, trendy upset pick has been the Rangers over yeah. the Capitals in the 3-6 series in the East – the Capitals are benefit of playing in maybe the worst division of all time. Sure. I mean, just a horrendous division. The Capitals were like with the Sabres seemingly all year until they weren't anymore, and Winnipeg faltered, and they grabbed a hold of that division and, and never let go. And Alex Ovechkin is the best player in the world right now. He's playing out of his mind. And, right. Uh, the Rangers are a team who also were near the bottom of the conference for a team that finished sixth in the conference, and here's what I don't like about the Rangers. All year long, you've heard about Tortorella getting fired, potentially. And this is a playoff team right now. Maybe because the expectations were so high, they got Nash. They've got maybe the best goalie in the league. They've they've spent. They've gone out and got pieces, and they were still really, really average. I mean, they if you put their overtime losses as losses, they were 26 and 22. I mean, it's not an overwhelmingly great team. They... Uh, they're not the best defensive team. Going into the this forward. season, that, I mean, this was the team that everyone thought would win the Stanley Cup, right? I mean, they probably had the, popular the pick, highest sure. odds or, or very close to them. And I think that's why so many people are sticking with them. You know, they were my pick before. Uh, you know, they played well enough to climb from probably as low as 12th at one point all the way up to 6th. And, you know, the Capitals are playing a terrible division and they're not really a true three seed and... We were talking off the air about this a little bit. I think Washington's going to suffer from probably what San Jose has suffered from forever. They've always been this highly touted team. They've gone in pretty strong, and then they somehow find a way to blow it in the playoffs. And until uh, they have a lot of Russians, too, which I think people think less of or whatever when it comes to playoff times. They don't play as hard as Canadians or Americans or North American players in general. But uh, this is a tough one because you've got really – a team that was really hot toward the end of the stretch, and the Rangers who finished the season seven and three, so it's not terrible. But I would, I still want to say I, I think Washington can do this. They are hot at the right time. That said, the point you made about a bad division, I'd need like the Elias Sports Bureau or something to investigate this for me. Carolina, Tampa, and Florida are the 15th, 14th, and 13th place team in the East. So I wonder if that's ever happened. That one team wins the division and every other team is last in the conference. Yeah, hideous. 
Hideous division, for sure. Well, where's Winnipeg? Did you mention them? They... Oh, are they in that division? I forgot. Yeah, this I, one last year in it. That's right. I forgot about that. They finished ninth. Okay, so... So they were, they were solid, I guess. Yeah, but still... It's Winnipeg. Horrible division. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go with the Capitals just because I think Ovechkin's playing out of his mind. And uh, But there's definitely potential when Lundqvist is at the other end that... that the yeah, Rangers that's can, the scariest part, this. I think, for the Rangers is they do have that goalie there. Uh, I picked the Capitals in about six again. Boston, Toronto in a playoff series that I'd probably shock you to know that hasn't been played since, like, the 70s. These wow, two teams really? haven't met in the playoffs in years. And I guess that probably a lot of that is because Toronto spent time in the other conference. Oh, right. But um, this is an interesting series, too, in that Toronto is a team that I bet you nobody believes in. I bet you the people in Toronto are excited to be there, but I doubt they have a whole lot of faith in this. Yet Boston has been one of the most uneven teams in the league. Milan Lucic going into the playoffs is playing in the fourth line a lot. Uh, just... Guys not going right, especially considering, I mean, they're they're Boston. They're, if the Rangers weren't at someone's everyone's pick or Pittsburgh, then it was probably Boston, not Montreal, Washington, Toronto. Maybe but, uh, Boston's a team that's built for this, though. That's that's my thought too. Is if someone can flip the switch and if Lucic can be effective, it it's in this time of the season. It's like uh, what's his name, Hedberg from uh, Detroit. The guy is that his name? Yo, the Moose. Yeah, well, the Moose is Hedberg, but I think you're thinking of someone else, correct? Uh, the Moose is a goalie. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to think of the guy, I'm, or look up the guy I'm thinking of. But there was this guy for Detroit that always just excelled as soon as it became playoff time. He was kind of a... The anti-Patrick Marlowe? <laughs> yeah. Or Joe Thornton? Right. But uh, We'll get to them. I think that's what Boston is. I think they have that ability to... Franzen, Johan Franzen. Mm-hmm. Uh but, yeah, I think that's exactly. Yeah, I think the problem is Boston's just too deep. Uh, you know, I think the Leafs. They're too physical. The Leafs haven't been in the playoffs forever, and maybe their playoffs is making the playoffs. I think they'll get one of the two games at home, but I think Boston would win this pretty comfortably. Five yeah, I, games. I had Boston in six, but, yeah, I could just as easily see it go five. I I know you don't like a team skidding into the playoffs, and Boston, I think, what's their last ten? Three, five, and two, so not impressive. But, uh I think they turned that switch on. Maybe they coasted. I mean, the Sabres weren't going to catch him. Ottawa wasn't going to catch him. It's possible they just turned it off for the rest for the stretch run. All right, let's do the Western Conference. Uh, interesting one versus eight in the sense that the Blackhawks have been the number one pretty much forever. Yeah. And the Wild came dangerously close to not making right. the playoffs I mean, at they all. Got in a tiebreaker. So. Is there any chance in your mind? Can you can you come up with any reason why the Wild would beat the Blackhawks? In no, this I think this is more lopsided than Penn's Islanders. I just I can't see any reason Minnesota. It feels like a sweep to me. Yeah, I've got this in four for the Blackhawks. Uh, Heatley getting hurt doesn't help. I know Jason Pominville has been very good. The one thing is the game, the first game. That's the one where they can steal it because. Chicago has been so comfortably ahead for so long. They haven't played a big game in forever. You could make an argument they might not have played a big game all year. And that's when a team like the Wild can kind of sneak up 
and steal one, but I yeah, just I don't, don't see it. So I, I don't see it at all. I, the only team in the playoffs with a negative goal differential. They don't score. They're, they're not they, – they have the lowest goals for and the most goals against for any team in the East or in the West. Kudos for spending money on two guys and trading for Palmerville and making it, but wrong team to run into in round one. Do you think Columbus would have stood a better chance? It wouldn't have mattered. I mean, they they got a nice goalie, but their goalie would have had to play really. Bobrovsky would have had to play really hot in Columbus. Yeah, it wouldn't have mattered. Columbus gave it a run. No, they went eight and two in the last ten games to miss on a tiebreaker. Bummer. Yeah, everyone was hoping Columbus would make it too. I mean, the, there was a <laughs> national push for that. Ducks and uh, Ducks and uh, Red Wings. Red Wings, kind of a good series. Interesting. Red Wings, not the best Red Wings team. No, this is another series though. You'd be surprised if you look. I I was telling you I did these picks and then I looked afterward to see kind of what the consensus predictions were in this one there was a lot of people predicting upset too and i don't know if that's just detroit's name or again maybe they just think this is a veteran team that can flip the switch come playoff time and maybe that is the case uh they do have guys like franzen and zetterberg and datsuk around there so it'll be interesting to see what detroit the playoff team looks like without number five yeah you know i don't know it's been a long time since detroit's played a playoff game without Nicholas Lindstrom. It'd be interesting to see what that team is like, what that locker room is like. Still a lot of veteran players there, but I would assume I, I'm sticking with Anaheim. I think that they have a lot of good top end players and I think that they're good enough to, but I think Detroit will make them sweat. I think it would be six or seven. Yeah. See, I thought the opposite uh, Anaheim to me, Early in the season, Chicago got all the press because of the run they went on. During that run, Anaheim stayed within like two, three points of them the entire time. So they were really hot, and they maybe would have been a story if not for Chicago. And really, it's Pittsburgh, Chicago, and then Anaheim was not really that close to those two, but they were kind of. But Anaheim led the other teams. Like they were the best second tier teams, and Detroit just wasn't. And, uh, I don't know. I, I think Anaheim scores enough goals. I think Detroit's goalie is going to have to play out of his mind, and I don't know that they have that ability. Or you said without Lidstrom, I don't know that that defense has the ability to keep Anaheim off the scoreboard. And so you're going them. Anaheim quicker. I got him in five. All right. Uh, San Jose and Vancouver, pretty good first-round series. Actually, the last two Western Conference series are, are pretty good in St. Louis and yeah. Vancouver and L.A. and, and St. Louis. Um, the problem with the tr- the sharks is y- you really can never trust them in the playoffs, right. but except for the season that they lost to the Bruins in the finals, can you really ever trust the Vancouver, Canucks in the no. playoffs? Right. So I don't know which team to trust now. I'm gonna go with, and then you have the goaltending thing and Vancouver two guys, but yeah, they Vancouver say when you have the two guys, you don't have any, right? Yeah, and I know. They tried to trade Luongo, but his contract got in the way. Uh, I, for whatever reason, feel like this is going to be a long kind of back-and-forth series where one night one team might beat the other 4 to nothing, and then the next night lose 4 to nothing. I, I just yeah. think these are weird teams that are hard to read, and I think it'll go 7, and I'll just give the edge to the home team. You know what? That's kind of exactly what I did, and I went one step further and kind of looked into their records to see if I could find anything. Uh, both teams phenomenal at home. Vancouver fifteen six and three. Maybe not. Maybe that's not overwhelmingly great. San Jose seventeen two and five. 
Uh, I mean, that's a lot of overtime losses, but seven, two regulation losses for San Jose at home. Unfortunately, they don't play four home games, so I took Vancouver in seven. Yeah, and then the last uh, series to talk about is Los Angeles and St. Louis, and uh, the Kings were the eighth seed last year, and then they almost swept the entire playoffs. Uh, and it'll be they're not that different of a team this year, uh, and they embarrassed the Blues last year. So does that play into it at all? Do you feel like the Blues are looking for some kind of revenge? Now the Kings are in the spot that they're in, mostly because they got off to a very slow start. They, I bet over the last thirty games of the season, or maybe even twenty games of the season, they're they're one of the better better teams. Yeah, so. I don't have that record in front of me. Uh, the Kings are kind of a funny team in that they're nineteen four and one at home. So again, an overwhelmingly good home record. Eight twelve and four on the road. Uh, so not good. But this one just came down to me thinking maybe the early season was a bit of a Stanley Cup hangover, as they call it. Right. And uh, you got to beat the champs, I guess, first before I'll believe it. I, I took the Kings in six. Yeah, I'll take the Kings in six as well. So. That'll do it for the Sportscasters first round NHL Stanley Cup preview. Um, I guess just real quick, what series are you most excited to watch? Does one jump out? Uh, boy, as a Northeast Division fan and the Sabres fan, I always kind of root. You got two there. I root against all the other teams. I know they always say like when you get beat, you want the team that beat you to do what. I want to see all the Northeast teams get knocked off because I don't like any of them. Except for maybe Ottawa. I don't really hate them anymore. Uh, the best series, though. I think you got to go Washington, New York. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Lots of stars. Bruins-Leafs, I think, should be a really fun series. I, I, like I said, I don't know that Toronto has enough to do anything there, but their fans in both cities should be loud, and it should be that should be a hard-hitting series. Uh, the West, to me... I just don't know the teams enough. I, I'm displaying a total East Coast bias, but L.A. St. Louis should be close. Yeah, I think L.A. St. Louis is the best series there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're gonna watch Chicago and Pittsburgh, and this, we talked last week about how the NBA playoffs looks like just who gets to lose to the Heat in the finals. This looks like a collision course between Pittsburgh and Chicago. Oh, and we said last week the NHL do backflips. Yep. I mean, that's what they want. So, all right, we'll be right back. Our next guest is from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and is a graduate of the journalism program at Concordia University. He has contributed work for ESPN.com, GQ, the New York Times, and countless other publications. Today, he's a staff writer for the popular Grantland website, where he also hosts a podcast during the baseball season and has been appearing on Baseball Tonight. His book, The Extra 2%, focuses on the rise of the Tampa Bay Rays and is a New York Times bestseller. His next book about his beloved Montreal Expos is due to be released in the spring of 2014. He is making his sixth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscasters welcome to Jonah Carey. What's up, Jonah? Hey, how are you doing? Good, very good. Uh, excited about the Baseball Tonight stuff. I know you're real excited about it. I know you've tweeted about how um, you grew up watching Baseball Tonight, and I think anyone who's a baseball fan has done that. How has the experience been so far being a part of uh, about a part of baseball tonight? 
Uh, you know, not bad. Uh, I'm learning that TV requires some skill, and I'm doing my best. Uh, you know, just simple things like looking the right way and talking the right way and all that stuff. But I'm I'm trying, and I think that the important thing is to uh, convey information, and that's really what we're going for. The idea here is, you know, that I bring a different voice to the show, a little bit more of an analytical voice maybe than they're used to. And uh, but you try to draw the line. You try to kind of get that analysis out there, but without alienating the masses too. So we're going to talk about some concepts that are you know, interesting and different, but we're not necessarily going to beat people over the head with it, and we're going to be respectful of, uh, of you know, people's preconceived notions and just sort of gently nudge, nudge them along the path, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it seems like every year the gap between the people who refuse to accept the analytics and the people who refuse to talk about anything but the the analytics kind of is closing a little bit each year. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and I mean, you know, it's spreading in other sports, too, of course. I mean, basketball, we've made great strides, naturally. Uh, Zach Lowe and people like that at Grandma are doing some great work. And, you know, we're starting to see it in football, of course, and hockey. And, and it's gaining some acceptance. And there will always be people that are set in their ways. But that goes for anything. I mean, that's you're never going to convert 100% of the population. It's the same as, as anything, as public policy or whatever. So you just, uh, you know, you do the best that you can. You always try to be respectful. And you try to speak English too. That's always important, you know, you say, or whatever the language of choice. In this case, it's English. But you try to say, "Hey, listen, you know, I'm going to talk about it, but I'm not going to say it in a way that's going to be uh, purposely, you know, opaque. I'm going to try to make it uh, accessible, and, uh, and hopefully, uh, people respond that way." It's basically how I write, but it's just brought to a TV uh, audience. It's the same kind of concept where you're taking. Uh, you know, maybe complicated ideas, but you're trying to put them into simple form. If I could do the same thing that I'm doing on TV as I am in my writing, then that's really, that's my goal. That's all I want to do. Yeah, and you know, you've mentioned it's spreading to other sports. The Sabres have actually announced that they want to be the uh, the head of it in hockey, and they've created a hockey analytics department. Um, not sure what that is just yet, but they've created one, and apparently they're going to be doing great work, so... Should be a Stanley Cup parade here any 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 week or month now. So. Can I just tell you one thing about the Sabres, by the way? Right before I left the house, uh, tomorrow is May 1st. Well, I don't know when this runs, but uh, anyway, whatever that is. Wednesday, or Wednesday will be May 1st. Right. And uh, one of my favorite sports calls in the history of all sports is the Brad May goal. I, I just ripped in and read that call. I'm a sucker for the crazy, insane calls. I mean, I, I understand something and all that, but... If it's Gus Johnson or Rick Red or whatever, I go nuts for that stuff. And so uh, I just, you know, started watching the May clip, uh, just anticipating tomorrow, and then I just fell into kind of a Rick Red basically rabbit hole of YouTube and started watching all the old clips, and it's just, it's so awesome. I mean, I never, you know, had any particular opinion for the Sabres one way or another, but just, he's fantastic, and, uh, you know, that franchise has a history, and it, it's, uh, it was pretty cool to watch. Unfortunately, it's not going to be their year this year, but it was, it was a lot of fun that, uh, yeah, me and my dad were at the May Day game, and I remember the whole walk back to the car, us talking about how excited we were to hear what Generat did, like what the call was. Totally. And, yeah, and obviously we weren't we weren't disappointed. And before we let you go, I'll, I'll play you my favorite Generat call at the, when we finish up. Uh, a little bit about baseball. Nice. Um, it's at this point kind of in the season where – you look at the standings, and I think we it, it might have been us that talked about this last year, where it's like records can be deceiving at this point because of who teams have played. And, and you know, have they played quality opponents, and that's why they're, say, 18-7, and seven, or 
you know, have they played poor opponents and that's why they're 18 and 7 or have they played quality opponents and it's it's a really tough at, at this point to look at the standings and get a handle on who the best teams are. Maybe you agree or disagree with that, but at this point with teams having played about 25 games, uh, are the teams leading the divisions, or some of them at least, the teams that you think will be there at the end, or is it still too early? Well, I mean, I have my preconceived notions about what I saw what happened at the beginning of the season, and 25 games don't change that dramatically. The way they, to look at it, whatever you think of the schedule or not, these games have happened. So let's say you're the Angels, for example, and you're, I, I don't know their exact record, but let's say they're roughly 9-16. and 16. Okay, so, I mean, if you think that the Angels are a 90-win club, then now they have to go on a pace of about a 96 or 97-win club in order to get to 90 because they've already lost 16 games out of 25. So that's what matters here. It's just adjusting your projections a little bit uh, just in terms of what you expect to happen because it's, you know, what you would call the gambler's fallacy to say, okay, well, this has happened. They're going to make up for it. Not really. If you think they're a 90-win team, then you should expect them to play like a 90-win team. And if they play like a 90-win team, then they're going to win – you know, 83 or 84 based on this page and not 90 and therefore fall short of the playoffs. So that's what really matters. I will say this also about uh, the early schedule. And of course it's the case that, you know, the Red Sox just finished brutalizing the Astros. They're going to be swept them four straight over the weekend. Sure. I mean, that helps a lot, but look, you've got to take care of business too. And I think of a team like the Tigers, a great team. And I fully expect them to, you know, go to the playoffs and maybe win the world, win the world series this year, but they got beaten up by the twins pretty good earlier this year. I mean, you know, that was an easy opponent. They didn't win that game. So, it's easy to tell, yeah, well, whatever, you know, they play easy opponents, but you still have to beat them, and it doesn't happen every day. Baseball, not basketball. If you're the Heat and you play the Charlotte Bobcats, you're almost never going to lose the Charlotte Bobcats. And in baseball, even if you have a great team against a lousy team, and even if the great team has an ace going and the lousy team has a number five starter going, baseball's such a weird and unpredictable sport. The lesser team's still going to win probably three out of ten times that game. So I just think that everything needs to be taken with, uh, you know, with a grain of salt and, temper expectations a little bit and just wait because it is a small sample size. It's not that it doesn't matter. Like I said, those 15, 25 games are in the bank, and if you're losing, that affects things, and if you're winning, that affects things. But there's still a lot of baseball left to be played. Well, you mentioned the Angels as a team who are playing below expectations, and obviously the other one that jumps off the screen is the Blue Jays based on everything they did in the offseason and all the hype surrounding them this year. Only being 9-17 and 17 at this point, and I've heard things thrown around like this year's uh, Mar- Marlins is 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 it that bad? Well, I mean, yeah. Again, we have to look at the context here, and just everything can be blown out of proportion with a small sample. Dave Cameron did a great piece on Fangraphs, and he was talking about uh, the nature of wins above replacement. There was a big debate yesterday on on Twitter about wins above replacement. It doesn't mean anything this early in the season because it's a small sample size. And Cameron's argument was basically, you know, yes, you, you do obviously have to, uh, you know, consider the small sample, and that's certainly true, but there are ways to kind of dig up what the outliers might be. And one of the things he pointed out was the sequencing of runs. What is the sequencing of runs? Okay, it goes like this. If you are hitting 340 with runners in scoring position like the St. Louis Cardinals are, then your record is going to be better than whatever your team wins above replacement might suggest you're, because you're just hitting in you know, key situations, driving in those runs, and they're coming through and whatever. If you're hitting 220 with runners in scoring position, which is what the Angels and some other teams have been doing, the Jays have really, really struggled, and the Dodgers have really struggled. Those, probably, by the way, are the three biggest disappointment teams at this point in the season considering preseason expectations. All three of them have been hitting terribly with runners in scoring position and have not had good what you call run sequencing. 
is that an actual skill? Eh, probably not. They're not going to hit 220 all season with runners in scoring position. It's just a small sample size fluke, but it is very much affecting their record. Now, Jose Reyes is injured. That is a real injury and a real player who's gone and has a real impact on the team. Things like that matter. If you lose good players, fine. But if you're talking about, you know, this is their record and this is what happened, it has to do with whatever, they hit with men on base or the ball hit a Pablo in the cost in a game or whatever. It's so early that these little events seem much, much bigger when we blow them out of proportion. If the Jays had started the season, I don't know, 32-27, and 27, and then they went 9-17, and 17, we'd say, gee, that's a setback. Now they're 500 club. But because we have no other games to go by, we're saying, God, it could be an apocalypse for the Jays. They're on to lose 110 games. They're not going to lose 110 games. I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs, but they're going to be a pretty good team. You know, I read uh, something on Twitter yesterday about how it was the latest in the season since 2002 or something like that, that the Pirates and the uh, Royals are both in first place. And I know technically today the Royals are half a game out of first place. Do you give either one of those teams a chance at – it's funny because it seems like we've been doing this with the Pirates the last three years. If, you know, Two years ago they made it to about July. Last year they made it to about August. How far can the Pirates and uh, Royals kind of keep – this excitement up in their prospective cities? Well, I just wrote about the world today, Granlin, and I talked specifically about the, the pitching efforts that they made in the offseason. They really overhauled the entire rotation. Well, not the entire. Four out of the five guys are new starters in that rotation, which is by far the most aggressive pitching makeover of any team. And so, uh, yeah, you know, you have to consider that factor, that they're going with new personnel. And so far, some of those guys that's working out, Irvin Santana in particular has been very, very good, and I wrote extensively about Santana He's got a great slider and so forth, and that's all working to his advantage. Uh, but I also talked about, you know, some of the other things that are going on with this club. That Wade Davis was a guy that they thought they could rely on. He had not been pitching well. And it's kind of a mixed bag over there in Kansas City. You know, they're 13-10. and 10, They're half the game out of first place. But still so many question marks for a team that started off this well. And so we really don't know. And Pittsburgh is sort of the same way. Some of the performances are, have been good, and, and that's fine. And if anything, they're going to get some positive regression from somebody like uh, Andrew McCutcheon was off to a very slow start, but by the same token, the bottom of the rotation is a total disaster. They've got you know, significant holes up and down their, their roster, and it's really hard to tell. The Pirates have been in first place at one point in the year, the third year in a row, and I don't mean like after one game. I mean, you know, after four, five, six, seven, eight weeks, the Pirates were in first place and fell out of it, and the Royals have had stretches like that too. But, you know, in the meantime, we go back and look at it, the Pirates have not made the playoffs since 1992, and the Royals haven't made the playoffs since 1985. So there's a reason for skepticism. We, we just, we've seen the song and dance before. Neither of these teams look tremendously great on paper, and so you know, if they do succeed, it would, be, it would be the unlikely scenario, not the likely scenario. Yeah, a great uh, stat I heard about the Pirates this year is J.T. Miller. I don't know if you know who he is. He plays uh, for the Rangers. He was born and scored two goals in Madison Square Garden quicker than since the last time the Pirates made the playoffs. You know, he was a 1993 born, so he became yeah. a... Yeah, yeah, so that's pretty incredible. Uh, the Braves, it seems like they live by the home run, die by the home run. That's kind of be got to be scary for any Braves fan, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the Braves are off to a strong start, and, and Justin Upton's been going nuts and so forth. It's funny about the Braves because... Some of their players are, are really not. I mean, I mentioned McCutcheon, but B.J. Gatton's not hitting at all. Jason Hayward was hitting literally 121 before he went on with the UCL with appendicitis. They have kind of underachieved in some ways, too. This is a good ball club, and they'll be in the mix. It's going to be an interesting race. You know, the Nationals are off this low start. 
there's a stat I read about uh, if you take Bryce Harper's stats out of Washington's lineup, they're hitting something like 223 with a 340 or 350 slugging, which is to say they're not hitting at all. So it's been a funny start for them. And Dan Heron, I don't know if he's going to be the uh, the acquisition that they found. Gio Gonzalez is off to a slow start, but this is also another loaded team. I mean, you expect them to get to get it in gear as well. It should be a very compelling race. I don't think the Mets and the Phillies or the Marlins are going to be a factor, but I think the Braves and the Mets could shape up as one of the better uh, one-two races in all baseball. Yeah, you mentioned Harper, and we had so much fun last year with Trout and Harper and, and the seasons they put together, and obviously Harper's off to a, a, an amazing start. I mean, I'll sit down and watch him play baseball any day of the week. Is there anyone... This year, um, that you have a special eye on, any, any rookies or any guys maybe in their second year that are getting a, a chance to play a bit more that you think maybe, I mean, I don't want to say could be Hart and, or, um, could be Trout and Harper because that's not fair, but, you know, guys to keep an eye on this year. Well, Matt Harvey did, you know, had 59 innings pitched last year because he was uh, just starting off his career. And, and at the beginning of this, before the season started, I said, oh, you know, you're looking for breakout players. Harvey's almost one of them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so far, so good. He's been maybe the most dominant pitcher in baseball, certainly one of the top three or four. Been pitching great, and, and uh, you know, the small sample size applies here as well. But, man, if you just watch the guy, I mean, he's throwing, you know, 97 in the late innings, and nobody can touch his breaking stuff. He's just doing a lot of good things. Now, the next start, I think, can always struggle with command, won't throw strikes, he'll be out of the game in three, four innings. Of course, that's always possible, but you just have to like a lot of the things that you're seeing from him. And, and I think in the American League, uh, Matt Morris had a little bit of that start for the Rays, too. And he well, he came up in 2011 right at the end of the season and pitched the playoffs and was just dynamite and, and very, very talented pitcher. It was 95-96 with ease. You know, just had kind of that nice, easy left hand in motion. And then people were saying, gee, he's going to be amazing. A rookie last year, and he did play the full season, so it's not like this is a new playing time opportunity. But uh, no, only a so-so season last year. You know, it was not great, and maybe people were getting ahead of themselves with their expectations. Because of the Harpers, because of the Trouts, because you have guys that come out of the shoot, a few guys anyway, that come out of the shoot so well, Ryan Braun was like this too, that you just kind of say, well, why isn't everybody doing this? And it takes time, especially right. for pitchers. But Moore's put it together in year two. He's been tremendous. Uh, him and Alex Cobb have really been very, very good for the Rays. And, uh, you know, they're under 500. They still have a lot of things that they have to work out. And uh, But uh, they're another one of those bad run sequencing teams. You talk about the Angels and the Dodgers and the Jays. The Rays have struggled in the late innings. They've struggled in the clutch. They've struggled in all these situations. But the talent should be there. I think they should be uh, right in the mix. Losing James Shields probably won't have much effect on that pitching staff with the emergence of, uh, of Alex Cobb and especially Matt Moore. One last question, and then I want to play you a real quick Rick Jenneret clip. Um, do you do you starting to get a bad feeling about this Derek Jeter injury in the sense that maybe this thing isn't going to heal? Maybe we've seen the last of Derek Jeter. I don't know. Just to me, it just feels like every time they put a time frame on it, that time frame just doesn't work out, and there's another setback, and he's not a spring chicken, and it just feel starting to feel weird to me. Yeah, I don't think you're going out on a limb by saying that anymore. We're at the point now where he's at least out until after the All-Star game, and, and when he, the injury first came up, we were saying, well, he, he might be ready for opening day. So, of course, it is the case that uh, that we, it is weird, as you say, and we don't know. And, sure, that's a factor. I think he's going to have a lot of injuries. I mean, Heater being one of them. It wouldn't be so bad if Eduardo Nunez wasn't playing so terribly. I don't think he's been bad a player. I think he can hit a little bit. He's not a good fielder, but he can hit a little bit. So it's not the end of the world. If uh, if Cheater takes some time out, it's just a big contrast compared to last year because it was kind of a sudden, you know, late career bounce back. He had 200 odd hits, and 
it just really came together for Jeter. But I, I think that was sort of a one-off, fluke-ish, you know, last gasp, last great season thing. And so, uh, ultimately, it's part of a puzzle. You have to get Granderson back and Fischer and all these guys. But I'll tell you, I mean, you know, you can't complain so much about the Yankees so far. They're winning games. They're really hitting right-handers. The Travis Hafner acquisition has worked out great. And Hafner was always one of those guys who, if he could just stay healthy, you know, would put up the numbers. And even in his mid-30s, he's still doing it. That's been fine. They're getting some pitching from the top of the rotation. Having Rivera back doesn't hurt. It's not a bad team. But if they could just, you know, even tread water until they get some of these guys back, right. it could be very interesting. Jeter could find himself just plop right back into the middle of a pennant race, even if he doesn't come back until August or September. Yeah, yeah, and uh, well, Euclid's going on the DL now isn't going to help either. But like you said, they are going to get guys back, and and they have tried treaded water as you put it through the first twenty five games. So let me set this up for you real quick, and I don't know if you watched this one or not, but the second year after the last lockout, the Sabres started ten and zero. They won the President's Trophy, and it was pretty much Stanley Cup or bust. Everyone knew Drury and, Bre- and Briere were going to be free agents, and. You know, are we going to sign them? Maybe one, maybe two. The team's never going to be this good. And I remember standing at the HSBC arena, and the Rangers scored a fluky goal late in the third period, and it was one to nothing. And they were going to take a three to two series lead and go back to New York and knock us out in the second round and end our dream season. And that was just going to be the end. And then this happened. So it's my all-time favorite goal and my all-time favorite Rick Jenner call. Go ahead, Don. Close to the boards, though, the Rangers. Here's Drury after it in the corner. Drury spun it out in front. There's the shot. Blocked in front. Rebound. Ah, oh, chills. Chills, Jonah. <laughs> awesome. All right, thanks a lot for doing this. We always appreciate it. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right, huge thanks to Jonah Carey. Dave Damashek, Ed Cunningham, and to Zach Rosenfield for helping us uh, get Ed on the program today. We really appreciate all the guests for appearing on the show today. I uh, hope everyone enjoys the NHL playoffs this week. And before we end the show, we're going to try something we tried last week. We're going to try it again this week and see if it catches on. And that's one last thing. And I'll start this week. Um, one last thing for me. This time of the year... If you're into TV and watching TV, maybe, you know, in my case, sitting down with miscaster, things that we DVR, it can be a nervous time because sometimes your shows, they get axed around this time of the year, you know, and, and sometimes they're on the bubble and, and you got to wait. And, you know, I'm always tweeting Steppenwall and uh, that hit fix Daniel, the guy who came on our show the one time and then turned out to be the busiest man in the world and has never been on since. <laughs> <laughs> to talk TV with us, but this year it's been about two shows for me and really hoping they came back, and one is Vegas, which is the XFL of television dramas because it 
was the number one new drama for like the first month of the season and then just faded to the point where they moved it to Fridays. Oh. And now it's hasn't been officially canceled but probably is not being picked up. It's a period piece and I guess period pieces like that are somewhat expensive. So they're tougher to get renewals, but it looked I mean it went from CBS doing commercials about it being the number one new drama on TV to looking like it's going to be canceled. And then the other one for me was is really the important one and that's Parenthood on NBC and I don't know if I've talked about it on this show before, but I'm not afraid to say I think it is the best show currently on network TV. It's going to be season five, and it was picked up this week for a full 22-episode order, which I couldn't be happier about. It's an unbelievable show that is about real things and handles them in a real way. There's no bullshit. Uh, the, one of the main characters' wives got breast cancer last week last season and the way they handled that situation there's just not another show on tv that i could see doing it like that other than shows like the sopranos or the wire or these shows that are on cable that seem to just for whatever reason maybe because of the freedom of the format always seem to be more authentic than the network shows but parenthood is unbelievable and i love it and i'm super pumped that a show with Dax Shepard uh, is going to get its fifth season and 22 full episodes, and I can't wait uh, to sit down with Miss Castner and watch it next year, hopefully again on Tuesday nights. One last thing, and I hope I remember to look back at this, and I'm going to hold myself to this, but uh, I played sports when I was younger, and I continued on a little bit in beer league hockey and stuff like that when I grew up, and there were occasions when I could be hard on referees. I've watched my brother from the crowd, and I've occasionally yelled, at referees and it's got to stop uh a referee in utah right now is sitting in critical condition after he gave a 17 year old a yellow card who out of nowhere clocked the guy in the face he yeah but i heard that this happened because when he wrote him in the book he wrote the jerk with the red jersey (laughs) and that's what actually pissed the kid off i didn't see that i shouldn't make light of that no that's okay uh, the police said it was described as almost an instinctive reaction that the kid just lost his mind and did it. And I don't like to blame society or a culture for someone else's actions, but I've been at hockey games where fans can be ridiculous. And these fans are the parents of the kids playing. So this kid is probably used to hearing his mother or father scream at officials or put them down and these officials are making like $10 an hour, which is nice money under the table, I guess, if you're a kid and need it. But half the time, these officials are kids. This guy happened to be a 46-year-old guy, probably just trying to make an extra buck or two on the side. But now he sits in critical condition and, as of 45 minutes ago, is still in critical condition over a yellow card. And how many lives are going to be ruined? I mean, this if this guy dies, what? so then this kid's right. facing manslaughter charges? The kid is currently in a juvenile... Uh, Detention center or yeah, whatever. Something I mean, like that. He's not home. They're not releasing his name, obviously, because he's a minor. And again, this kid made a horrible, horrible decision, but uh, I think it starts with parenting. And I know I've been on the other end of this watching my brother, who was 10 years my junior, much like your brother. I've been in the crowd, and I've yelled at refs who were probably similar situations, just guys trying to make a couple extra bucks. 
it's that stuff's got to stop. These are kids. This is a 17 year old kid that did this, whose life might be over if this guy ends up dying or something. So, uh, I don't know how else to put it, but stop it. It it's just a game. I think is what the NHL or college or somebody says.